To blueberries in August a bloom with ghostly light that erased itself in your fingers. The whole landscape was a painting come to life, and not a Canadian painting, no figures allowed, but a European painting, peopled and unpeopled, storied, brazen. A deer came out of the bush, hardly a sound. It was there, a tawny pose and wet eyes. They absorbed each other's attention. The deer lowered its head and nibbled. Ethel moved closer. Around them was birdsong, breezes. One small branch of a leaning maple showed the first touch of red. Early August. The jewelweed was in blossom. Tomatoes were ripening. The morning became increasingly hot. Summer held. But school was in the air. Every child felt it. She was aware of precious time running out. The search for the lost girl started at supper time and spread rapidly. First family and neighbors, then the police and Boy Scouts combed the Opiongo Road where she had been seen walking that morning. They moved out through the fields and along the creek, the scouts blowing horns to communicate their whereabouts far and wide. Bugling crisscrossed the evening and gave the impression of a summer fox hunt. The sun began to go down. Crows, not quiet before, were quiet now. A breeze picked up and stirred the leaves. Shadows deepened, but fields and woods were still clear enough to an accustomed eye. And a shout went up. A young man had stumbled over a body. Word circulated through town, and an hour before midnight a ghost appeared. It lingered in front of the Argyle Hotel on Argyle Street, then continued on past Russell's drugstore and Barker's shoe store, and over to the baseball diamond and the railway tracks in a slow, footless sort of swoop. A strange white moth involved in dusky explorations. A traveling player was drumming up an audience for the midnight ghost show at the O'Brien Theater. He drew an overflow crowd. Many had to stand in the back. Others were turned away. It was the summer equivalent of Santa. Children were up way beyond their bedtimes and even more suggestible than usual. By then everyone knew that 13-year-old Ethel Weir had been found at sunset in the bush on Ivy's Hill. Her battered head lay in a pool of blood. Four feet away were two kettles, one of them partly filled with choke cherries, the other empty. This part of the world is where I live now, at least in a general way. It contains the stream in which my grandmother washed herself in dumb panic upon finding a large red stain in her underwear, a motherless child raised by a Scottish grandmother who told her nothing. She passed on the favor, telling my mother nothing, even though they shared the same bed. And my mother passed this abashed ignorance on to me, asking me after the fact if I knew what to expect. It's hard to credit in this age of palaver that people used to say so little about sex. Until it exploded in their faces, that is, at which point newspapers told all. Two days after the murder, a name floated up on the front page of the Mercury. John Coyle, not an official member of the search party, 
almost stumbled over the corpse in a bush next to a grain field. Very quickly, suspicion veered from marauding cattle and prowling degenerates to the lone young man who had nearly tripped over the body. The hot breath of the newspaper. Police are working on the theory that some local person committed the deed. Some questioning has occurred. It is felt that at any hour the mystery may be solved. The old seesaw from horrified belief to dizzy disbelief to entrenched belief. The town was busy weaving a story, meeting out blame, finding symmetry and plot and motive. Johnny Coyle's fascination with his crime, went common opinion, reflected the old desire to return to the scene, as I'm doing right now in returning to this time and place, in revisiting my mother's childhood in the valley. Stories from her past draw me on. The shadows and underbrush.